This week's episode is brought to you by Colin. If you too enjoy The Whole Rabbit and would like to help support the show, visit www.patreon.com slash thewholerabbit, where a $5 donation will earn you access to our library of extended shows, bonus content, access to our fancy schmancy Discord server, and even two bonus stickers shipped at no additional cost directly to you. Subscribers to our rabbit and jackrabbit tiers will now be sent 4x4 embroidered barrel bunnies patches in addition to the other benefits while supplies last. If you've been a $5 subscriber for at least 4 months, I'll message you and ask if you'd like one. This week I'm joined by Mari Sama and special guest Gossamer Lights, and we discuss some of the hidden esoteric currents in our childhood favorite Beetlejuice. This one's a little on the short side, but pretty dense with info. In the extended episode, we talk for another 15 minutes or so about the thelemic and otherwise esoteric symbolism that's used to wrap up the film and put it in a neat little bow. So with that in mind, thank you and enjoy the show. Put trees, 44, Alec Baldwin, 47, 48, 49, trees, Gina Davis, 51, yeah, 52, Davis. 53. Okay, here you Are go. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Here's a church. Here's the church and the steeple. Open it all up. There's all the people. It's a nice white church with a red door. There's a lot of other houses that are around it that are decrepit and rusted out. Well, their and house has a red door too. Up in the attic where Adam works on the model town, he can see out the window and see that church perfectly in the window. Interesting. Interesting. You know, they spend too much time looking out the window. If they were reading the book of the recently deceased, they would figure out that all they have to do to leave their house is put on a mask. Hello everybody and welcome to The Whole Rabbit, where we don't just relax easily into the crisp autumnal air of Halloween quick approaching, unwinding passively with a pile of candy corn and a Tim Burton flick with our snuggly, mostly good smelling friends. No, we writhe in the worthy grave dirt of the Maitland's miniature and convince Winona Ryder to bind herself to us and the bed in unholy matrimony because this week we explore the esoteric undercurrents woven artfully into the 90s classic of our childhood Beetlejuice. What the hell is Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice anyway? Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. You have to say Beetlejuice. it three times. Yeah. It's showtime. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Beetlejuice is usually the number one star in the Orion constellation, which is kind of a big deal. The right shoulder. The it right is my shoulder. Constellation. It's a red giant. Um, hello, everybody. Um, I'm joined by Mari Sama. The Queen Hello. Wolf herself and Gossamer Lights, our special guest and expert on the script of Beetlejuice. Yep. Finally, my too much knowledge and something is coming in handy. Thank and you for sharing it. Yes, thank you. Thank you for I've had so much fun. It's been great. Part of the fun and part of the problem with Beetlejuice is there's a lot going on and it's hard to really get to all of it. But that's why we're ch- going to try and get the whole thing today. As as you may have noticed before, I, I, I almost skipped the introduction. Uh, Beetlejuice is an actual star, and it's it's the brightest star if you could see X rays, right? Infrared, infrared. Right, okay, X rays. Well, no, no, infrared's heat. It's pretty hot. It's big. Well, the thing I like most about it in the sciencey way is that it's it's a like like a Russian nesting doll of shells of different gaseous layers. So every time scientists measure it. They get a different measurement, so they keep arguing about how big it is or isn't. And I just think that's very Beetlejuice. Makes me laugh. Because mm-hmm, he's a shapeshifter. And he and does change size. He has all the things. And form. The constellation 
of Beetlejuice has some significance to marriage and even arm injuries. Uh, let's see here. Dude, Jane is so ugly in the movie. Yeah, but she's she really gets that like nosy like get out of my business thing down. Yeah, like uh, in the when I read the script, I imagined her as an old lady, you know, like an old bitty. Jane, uh, the like, the real estate yeah. woman who owns the real estate in town, right? But yeah. she's like she's like the same age as Barbara. It looks like but why does why why is she trying to sell the house like out from under him? Does she just not like the fact that Barbara can't make kids or something? She's a realtor and she thinks she she can get a lot more money and downsize them. That's okay. her idea. So in the script, she is just a real estate agent, but in the movie, she's actually related to Barbara. Oh. So I, I, I like to think that like Barbara inherited the house and she's just kind of jealous of it. She mentioned she did so. design it, the interior of it. Yeah. Barbara's fixing all that kind of. That's so cool because it's like the family wants to get her out of the house because she's not having kids. She doesn't want to admit that. I do like what a cute couple they are, though. This, I think, for me, is one of the few examples of like, that's a healthy, wholesome relationship Hashtag right there life goals girl yeah maybe Definitely. that's why my mom let me watch it as a kid so easily she would not let me watch the simpsons or married with children for the opposite reasoning yeah my mom said the simpsons were <laughs> dirty that's what my mom said too for but for that reason in specific my my school used to yell at my mom for letting us watch the simpsons but my mom was like that's what we do as a family together deal with it uh, we went to Montessori school, so they were a little more involved in what was going on at home. I went to Montessori school. They taught me how to grow celery. I love that place. It was great. Yeah, Mari, what were you saying? They didn't teach me how to grow celery, but my sister went to a Montessori school. But yeah, no. You know what they didn't teach me in Montessori school? What? In the Americas, Beetlejuice signifies the severed limb of the man figure, Orion. The Tulipang of Brazil know the constellation as Zilakawe, a hero whose leg was cut off by his wife with the variable light of Beetlejuice linking to the severed limb. So it's like spurting out blood. <laughs> they noticed that the star itself had those varying degrees of luminosity. Well, and that it gets more and less red. Sometimes it's brighter, but sometimes it's more red. Similarly, the Lakota people of North America uh, see it as a chief whose arm has been severed. Where does the injured severed leg come from? Am I just like missing that part of the constellation? Who knows what people are looking at when they're looking at well, the stars? And he yeah. has a belt. So for sure he has a middle. So if you recall, at, at one point, Barbara just gets completely fed up being stuck in the house. And she's like, I'm out of here. And when she steps off, of course, she ends up on the moon of Titan, which is the sixth moon of Saturn, by the way, which is the sixth planet and the outermost of the classical planets that you can see with your bare eyes. She punches the snake worm in the in the head like Orion. And the snake is like, ouch. And it's her this arm. Is she's dead. This is after they're dead. By the yeah, way. this is after they're dead, by the way. But her arm gets severed in the script, right? Um, yes. And then in the scene that we're all synced up to right now, she blows out the candles on her hand, which is a very like, I don't know. They don't really put it in the script that her arm is, or excuse well, me, they don't it, put it in the film that her arm is that fucked up, but it is in the script. Yeah, he does mention it. He's like, how's your arm? And it seemed kind of like, I don't know, just you, it, like it's easy to life. ignore if you haven't read the script. It would come back, you know. Yeah. And then in the script, her arm actually falls off into the fire. And that's how the two fingers get lit. Right. She's trying to put it back on. Yeah. Which I thought made more sense. I can only think yeah. the reason they would have cut that is because they were trying to save some of that more shocking stuff for later in the film because the film gradually increases in its weirdness and in its presentation. 
situation. Right. In the script, they also like grotesquely try to scare the inhabitants at least three or four times before they even contact Beetlejuice. And I think they only show like one or two of those in the film where they like contort themselves in a grotesque way to scare the family out of the house before they actually like, like Beetlejuice is a last, last resort for these guys. Like, and that it makes sense because it's a warrior constellation. It's like, okay, we have to go to war now. Yeah. Because we can't. We have to defend our home. Right. Now, which I, I do love in the script when Beetlejuice is like, that's kind of messed up. You want to kick them out, but all right. That like seems to be a big... them on their minor bullshit. <laughs> no, totally. And it, there's a big theme in the movie of hurting either the dead or hurting the living. Yeah, you mm. do either one or the other. But what the audience and what I didn't notice is that this is built into the movie deeply and symbolically. Just in the last episode about Kenneth Grant and the Witch's Sabbath, we learned that Aleister Crowley introduced a ritual into Western Hermeticism to a uh, place of central importance and this is the section that you read before evoking a bunch of demons from the goetia and the whole idea is it helps you command those demons now does it help you command those demons by when you are able to control your lower self then they can't use that against you or right because that's a theme in the film right that lydia might be opening herself up to outer influence because she's suicidal because she's so close to the veil right in the ritual the bornless one that alistair crowley made so popular, he reworked an old ritual where you take union with a higher power and then impose that power on outside demons and he reworked it so you're imposing that power on your own self and your own lower self. But I have a little bit here from Uh, what Gordon White has to say about it. One of the more obvious continuities of African Neolithic shamanism into dynastic Egypt is the story of Osiris. He is an archetypal shaman role, dismembered, decapitated, hid in a tree to further emphasize his vegetative association, and then restored back to life through the magic of his sister slash queen to become the lord of the underworld, the home of the spirits, who also appears in the sky as the constellation Orion. So Orion is an old archetypal symbol of the one who takes care of the dead in the afterlife, which is a central problem to Adam and Barbara, who for all their problems, what they really need is somebody to tell them what to do and help them out and guide them. Yeah, because the book's not good enough for them. And just so happens that the star Betelgeuse is the number one star in the constellation of Orion, taking the name of Alpha Ori. Or in some cases, just Ori, which is kind of fun. To continue on with what Gordon White was saying, there is a significant precedent for folding this imagery into initiatory process. Fortunately for us, there's a ready-made solo rite version of this imagery hidden in plain sight of the Western esoteric tradition. What is now known as the preliminary invocation of the Bornless Rite was first translated from a collection of Greek magical papyri housed in the British Museum in 1852 and was subsequently discovered by magicians involved in high Victorian Renaissance, namely Samuel McGregor Mathers and Aleister Crowley. Despite some clumsy retranslation where the word headless was swapped out for the word bornless, thanks largely to their penchant for playing fast and loose with Hebrew words when it suited them, their Hebrew resh can mean, among other things, head or beginning. But the original Greek, akaphalos, clearly means headless. So just to tie it all together, the most powerful, central, and important ritual in Western Hermetic magic, at least in the opinion of some, is the invocation of the Bornless One, which has an archetypal correlation to the constellation of Orion, who is the original psychopomp and helps control 
and help guide the dead, which I think is kind of an interesting tie together for the the whole film. Like there is a, a, a strange occult undercurrent going through everything. Like they make some some pretty big assertions like like suicides end up being service workers on the other side. Like that's kind of a hot take. Yeah. Or like even Otho, who's like Delia's house decorator, that guy, he used to be a spiritual advisor, apparently. And a chemist. Yeah, he used to do seances and stuff. Mm-hmm. He's like, until the bottom fell out of the market in like 72 yeah. or whatever he, he says. He just sells it. He's like a plastic version of that. He is archetypally the Hierophant. He comes in through the window right. wearing red shoes, which symbolically represent the papal shoes, which is what the Pope wears. And then later, he's the one who actually does the exorcism. Correct. They like look to him as a like a shaman almost. You read my mind. So few so few clients are able to read my mind. They're just not open to the experience. Although I do love when he is leading the shaman as part of it. That that's one of my favorite lines in the movie too, when Lydia's like, What am I worried about, Otho? You can't even change a tire. Good point. Hey, that's a sort of sacred knowledge, too. You know what? I found out it is, in fact, a sacred knowledge. Not everyone knows how. When I got my learner's permit, my mom's like, go rotate the tires on all the cars or you're not driving anywhere. I was like, all right. So now that I've established myself as a bumbling maniac, um, the headless one or Orion is usually accompanied by his dog, Sirius who's also associated with summer, death, and the hurting of lost souls. Uh, Going back to what Gordon White has to say about dogs, why dogs death in late summer? Why would this be my recommended route into the magical dealings with the dead? This is a very old Indo-European association, possibly a dozen millennia old. In numerous Indo-European traditions, the dead are compared to a herd or flock, with the divine shepherd and his dog, or dogs, managing the herd. We see echoes of this tradition with Hecate, to whom dogs are sacred, hounding lost souls. We see it with Cerberus, guarding the threshold to the underworld. We see it in the Roman tradition of household gods and spirits, Lars, who often is depicted wearing dog skins. Homer describes Sirius as the hound of Orion. During the dog days of Orion's hound, redoubled the fiery heat of the sun, bringing in the afternoon, suffering to all living creatures. So it has this association with severity, death, and hurting the the dead. Rising the dead, putting fire into them. Which is a power that Beetlejuice says to have. He says, I'll make demons flow all through them. I'll make all then he his bonus in his commercial is like, I'll I'll even throw in a complimentary one for you. I I like that the bornless ritual also seems very fitting, especially in the script, because Beatles Juice's attack on each character is very personal and tailored to their flaws. Correct. Like he shifts himself into a state that would just rustle their jimmies the most. In other (laughs) words, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like he knows exactly what to do. And it's because he's the if if you would consider the bornless one, somebody who has no form, if Mm. they can observe your thoughts, they're going to take on a form. And I feel like that this demon in particular will take on something that puts puts you at unease and makes you feel nervous or afraid. Like in the script, he's depicted as having snakes eyes and having a dark complexion as in you can't really tell you can't read his features he has no features he looks at you and then mimics that he's a shapeshifter it seems kind of obvious from the script that Beetlejuice is written in to be a djinn which is 
a Middle Eastern conception of a demon, but even to people who are like somewhat into the supernatural tend to regard the powers of the jinn as exceptional because they're considered the prototypical being that was created before humanity. And as such, they possess like these immense spiritual powers and they can choose to either be in alignment with the good or out of alignment and act of their own accord and be evil. So I, Beetlejuice, I guess, fits this idea pretty well. And then he also acts kind of like a genie. Well, he even mentions to them when he's manifested that uh, whatever they want him to do, he'll do. But it's not bound by any morals. It's what they wish upon mm-hmm. So it's really on them for summoning him. Yeah, he's kind of like, I'm just here to do what you want me to do. Or you, you really want me to do that? That's kind of rude, but all right. Yeah, he even criticizes uh, them for being selfish over the house because he's like, well, you guys are supposed to move on, but who am I to judge? I'm here to help you. Well, that's the thing about the djinn is they were told that they were going to be secondary to the human, like, embodied clay beings and the and some of the djinn were like are you serious how could you even like compare and so there's this bitterness from the djinn to be like yeah okay you're the one who's in charge you're the one who's the most important one supposedly yeah you know best even though i have all these amazing spiritual powers so i mean that kind of comes through in beetlejuice's character to a degree I'm just saying that because the spirits consent to him bio-exercising the humans gives him a pass to, to terrorize being. He's using a median. He's blaming the karma on these spirits that died that want their house back, the Maitlands. Uh, yes, so because he, he's taking a contract and he's he's being paid in some way. So he's allowed to do what he wants, but it's in his contract. You know what I mean? That's why... It's showtime with him because it's show business. That's I feel like it's also a critique on a uh, like Hollywood and stuff and films and copyright law or whatever, like how you drop a contract and you're not sure what you're signing. Yeah. And the whole movie is about that. The limitations and the things you've been bound to, the things that you have to be committed to that you're responsible for and how this is going to affect your future. Saturn is a is a big part of the film. It seems to be like a running motif, like like when they step out of their house, they're on Titan, which is a a moon of Saturn. Uh, When the Romans got their business all up in the Greeks, they conflated their Saturn with Cronus, who was a Titan and was sort of like the personification of time. And as the youngest of Titans, he overthrew his father, Uranus, by cutting off his testicles. This is like an ancient allegory for the splitting of the sky because Uranus is the god of the sky and that created time because that was like the beginning. And as we know, Saturn is sacred on Saturday, the Sabbath. And so there's this whole thing about Saturn being related to limitations, time, aging, responsibility. I think the responsibility is a big part of that because basically Beetlejuice is calling them out on their failings to their social responsibilities and less like their internal ones. Right. Uh, Cronus represents the destructive ravagings of time which devour all things, a concept that's illustrated when the Titan King ate the Olympian gods, the past consuming the future, the older generation suppressing the next generation, which is exactly what Adam and Barbara get accused of by Beelgeist. They're like, oh, so it's your house forever. You're just going to like, you know, I mean, even Jane says that at the beginning, it's like, why do you have such a large house with all these rooms? And you're not sorry. I didn't mean it like that. It's because Barbara was infertile and she didn't want to insult her. But at the same time, they're wasting that house space because they didn't have kids and they're not going to. She's almost like an actor of that force being like, you you can't have this house because there are future generations that might need it. And it's she feels justified in imposing 
her will on them for the like greater good, like the greater scheme of things. Right. Well, and I think she's also comfortable in judging her for that because she has children. It's not like explicit that Barbara can't have children. It's that she hasn't yet and might not be able to. Okay, so when Jane pulled up and gave Lydia the skeleton key for the house, she had a kid in the back of her car. So it makes sense that she would she would take that jab at Barbara. And in the script, she actually has two kids. Mm-hmm. Like two is a big repeating thing in the script. It's kind of smacking you in the face. It's a bit obvious. <laughs> like I, I, I did a, a, a find for two in there just because I wanted to see how much there were like 59 instances of two used and like maybe about 10 of them could be discarded as an actual reference to two. Oh, but also there were two daughters, two sisters. You know what I mean? I like that. Well, and then it was two hours and there were like two little horses on the mantelpiece and there were two cans of spray paint. There was just two, 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 two everywhere. And even Titan being the sixth moon of the sixth planet is an interesting pairing as well. Six was repeated a handful of times in the script as well. But yeah, you guys are usually into the that numbers thing. So I was like, oh, I'm not familiar with this. I'm going to pay attention to that one. Good job. I didn't know that. But yeah, the the second daughter in the script was really, really cool. Uh, I like that. She was cool. I liked her. Felt very wholesome in that like series of unfortunate events way. Oh, yeah. Which I like. So (laughs) there's one fan theory here that Beetlejuice is actually the person in the town mentioned by the barber in the beginning, Bosman who owns the building across the street from the hardware store. And it's the same one that Adam is working on in the model. Ah. It's also the lot that the dad is looking at through the binoculars and is making commentary on it, suggesting that he might have a thing for haunted buildings, maybe unknowingly. Just trying to deny psychic abilities. He might be attracted to that weird, creepy stuff because we know that his daughter is. Well, he writes books about it. It sounded like he kind of just wrote books about it everything i think his real estate business kind of translates the same in the movie he's just like i can do anything with the all of it we're gonna take the whole town well the two thing makes some sense because barbara and adam are bound together through their love and it's that which gets them through but all the conflict in the film is created by the disunion between delia and her husband charles they don't even really want to change the house lydia and charles they want to keep it the way it is in fact in the beginning of the film like charles is running room to room like i know what you're doing you have to stop you know you you get, just leave this room alone and then delia's like listen if you don't let me change this house i'm gonna go crazy and take all you with me and he's like okay that's probably true and then they they kind of get to this uncomfortable back and forth agreement. They don't really agree on anything. And it's it's really this conflict between them and that marriage that causes the whole whirling events to occur in the film itself and and the relationship between the living and the dead. So I, the two makes some sense. Two is a number of union and it's a number of love. But three is also an important number because it's association with Saturn through the Kabbalah and also because you have to say Beetlejuice three times to conjure Beetlejuice. Is that even Beetlejuice's name? Is it actually Beetlejuice? Or is that just a phrase that's used to bind the gin? I think it's a phrase because obviously it's spelled differently and it's from a different language. So it's a moniker so that you can say it, you can pronounce it correctly in English. And it doesn't make much sense that he wouldn't be able to tell Lydia his name, but he would be able to tell her through charades because he says he's not going to tell her his name because he doesn't want to get interrupted all the time. 
whenever he's doing something as is if to suggest if he did give her his name that she would have power over him which is a traditional motif in the magic of Jin. well you have to summon them yeah, and it's it's like the Bloody Mary myth where you stand in front of the mirror and say Bloody Mary three times and you conjure her soul. It's the same. It's the same ghost story. Well, I think that's it's what got was a, applied. a vaguely Rumpelstiltskin thing going on. Like if I tell you, it gives you power over me. So you have to figure it out. You have to find my name or the curse is not lifted. You know, that kind of thing. Because you can also banish him, I think. Like, uh, also, and you are the expert on the Jin thing, but weren't, I know that they were before humans, but they were like adjacent to angels, right? Yeah. Over here in the Christianized world, we would call them fallen angels, which is interesting. Interesting because in the script, when Adam falls into the abyss, he is confronted by like a giant spinning wheel that's like destroying existence, right? Yeah, it's it's a black, dark void. And then these giant wheels of time come rolling through, like ripping up the ground. The, you know, ground air quotes around him. Well, but the there ancients, are two smaller wheels. Well, the ancients and even the Christians didn't perceive angels as like these super beautiful beings with wings. Oftentimes they're conceived of as giant flaming wheels. Oh, okay. Well, I, I was just because, yeah, I think the way I've always understood it is that they were kind of equal but different groups of things and in the script especially there's this whole like battle between Beetlejuice as whatever entity he is and angels as their traditional angel like they they were at odds yeah what I would argue that in the script like Swallowtail would be an angel yeah well he was expressly Gabriel I believe I do you know what the Swallowtail thing is swallows choose mates for life oh so you could have uh, Adam and Barbara be symbolized by swallows there's also a lot of bird gazing going on in the film. And even Adam has some birds in his hardware store, which is kind of strange. He has a whole bunch of them, like a red one and a yellow one. It's important to note that in the book, or I mean in the script, they read the book to summon Swallowtail. And when they dug up Swallowtail's grave, Beetlejuice came out of it instead. And he had subdued the other spirit that lived in that grave. But in the movie, they just dig up his own grave. Yeah, there's only the one. And the I reason like when, they get in, oh, go ahead. when they get into their model... When they get into the model to go summon Swallowtail, they're like, wait a second, that grave doesn't belong here. They're really up on what graves should and should not be in their graveyard. Right. No one by that name had ever died in their town. They knew that. Yeah. And Beetlejuice, they're like, also not that one. And then they don't think about it again. They're like, anyway, back to the task at hand. Well, he he, like I said earlier, might be Bosman because when the camera scrolls down, it's about in the location of the cemetery and where that would be in the town. So it's possible that Beetlejuice, his living old rotting corpse is actually located in the cemetery in the town where the Maitlands live. And through the magic of sympathy, they've recreated the town in their attic and they're able to actually access Beetlejuice through this astral trick of the miniature, which strangely is a motif you see quite a bit in movies that we've watched that house a motif around Saturn and death. Yeah, like they can't leave the actual physical house, but they can go in the model and explore the town in this like surreal way. But it's still a reflection of what's going on in reality. And then later on, Beetlejuice banishes them from the house to the model, but Barbara figures out they can use the model to re-enter the house. Correct. And if we're going to talk ancient Egypt and magic, the bird represented the soul or the spirit. And we have this idea that perhaps Charles Dietz has this thing for spirits or haunted buildings and he likes to watch birds, you know, so... 
the bird might be symbolic of the fact that they live in the spirit world and they're bound by spiritual laws. I think that was something they added into the movie. I don't think a Charles ever does anything like that in the script, but I, I did like that watching him. And I think in the script, actually, what is that study is actually Barbara's sewing room in the script. Oh, interesting. Well, we know that Tim Burton likes this whole theme of this ghost dog that accompanies the protagonist, though. Uh, there's this motif in Tim Burton films of the like dog companion. Mm hmm. That's sort of like Sirius. And then Jack Skellington, he's the king of the spirits and his dog Zero or Sirius, I guess, is his companion. And then in this movie, Jack Skellington is that's, this is where he appears on screen for the very first time when Beetlejuice is appearing as a giant wheel, which might be apropos to him since he could be a fallen angel who angels sometimes appear as giant flaming wheels. I don't know if that's a stretch, but he also appears as a serpent. Well, Beetlejuice says, yeah. I was going to say Jack being the topper to his hat does imply that Beetlejuice is subservient to him. Yeah, as if uh, these maybe these worlds are connected, that Jack Skellington is actually the emperor of all the dead. Because remember, Jack Skellington can take off his head. I want to see the day where he came up with, yeah, make them civil servants. I need so much bureaucracy over here, though. (laughs) Well, I looked very closely when Beetlejuice opens the newspaper for the first time. And Mm -hmm. some of the headlines are pretty great. Like one of them says, well, the first one you read is sandstorm incidents up 13%. And the second one says aid applicants checked against draft. And then I saw one and I couldn't make out all the words, but it said Medicaid scam convicted in district courts. So you get this. And then Beetlejuice, the only reason he has the newspaper is he's like, oh, I better look for a job and we know that Juno fired him at some point so he used to have a job and now he's looking for a job and then the first time they even see Beetlejuice he's on the TV and he's begging for a job you know I'll eat whatever you want me I'll swallow whatever you want me to swallow I'll chew on a dog I'll do it you know he'll he'll do anything so there's this idea that there is money on the other side Furthermore, if we're going to relate it back to mythology, Charon or Charon, however you want to say it, is a psychopomp, a ferryman of Hades who carries the souls of the newly deceased across the river Styx. And that river divided the world of the living from the world of the dead. And to get across, you had to pay him some coins. And this was called an obelus or a, a danaki and was sometimes placed in the mouth of the dead person. And if you couldn't pay the fee, it was thought that the person who was left unburied or didn't have the fee had to wander across across the shores for 100 years until they were eventually allowed to cross the river. So this is not unlike how Adam and Barbara have to stay in the house for 125 years because maybe they just haven't figured out to pay Charon. They haven't read the book. They don't know. Yeah, he's taking advantage of uneducated spirits. Well, also, though, and especially explicitly in the script, it says in the book, do not go to part to step two until you do step one and so on and so forth. And he's just immediately like, screw this, I'm skipping ahead a couple pages. So they kind of like make their own bed there. But this is an ancient problem as well. Like it was understood that people who didn't undergo a proper burial might get lost in the underworld. And that's why you needed Hikate with her dogs to help uh, guide those souls that were either buried improperly or hadn't received a fair trial or had gone unheard in life. And she would go to help them. And that's exactly who needs the help here is because these people have not been listened to in life. They're like, no, fuck off. This is our house. And like, we're taking 
taking a vacation and what does the world do? It like conspires to kill them. You know what I mean? Like they can't just be happy. So it, it's funny that you mentioned improper burial because they Adam in the movie specifically is like, it sucks. We can't see the cemetery. I don't know where to put our graves, right. but they also go from the wreck to back in the house. We don't actually know that the bodies were recovered. They could have not received a proper burial. And even when he, he goes to leave the house, it's to retrace his steps because he can't quite remember. I honestly think it's they have unfinished business. They wanted to have a kid in the house. I think it's that Jane murdered them, but that's my own pet theory. Okay, let's start with the first one and then go to the second one. Now, I think it's possible that Barbara was trying to conceive of a child because their service worker is Juno. Now, Juno was connected with all aspects of life of women, most particularly married life. In her role as female comforter, she assumed various descriptive names, individualized. She became a female guardian angel as every man had his genius, so every woman had her Juno. Thus, she represented, in a sense, the female principle of life. So when they go to get some help in the afterlife, they're assigned Juno, and it's possible that Juno maybe had already been assigned to them in life because she's trying to help them conceive. That would kind of explain why Barbara is kind of the lead of the movie if it's about the female uh, experience of that. And Juno is a, isn't it a moon of Jupiter? She's an attendant of Jupiter, right? I believe she's Jupiter's wife. Please don't get this wrong, Luke. And she sometimes is, but she's associated with Hera, who I think is Oh, Jesus. Yeah, Jupiter's wife. Uh, yeah, but she th- she brings abundance and she's the wife of the hearth and, and bringing children into the home, the kitchen, making food, food, abundance, money. It's odd that she slit her throat and is smoking cigarettes, though, because this character is also a suicide, it seems like. Because the suicides become service workers on the other side. And even Otho knows this as our evil hierophant. Yeah, I like that that's just generally known, like some old wives tale. Didn't you have a theory for it, though? Because like, it's possible that suicide might be considered a selfish act in this system, and so it might incur you some sort of a debt that would necessitate you needing to have a job to pay it off. The Maitlands have a very specified amount of time they have to be in their house for whatever reason. And so I, I would posit that so to do the the civil workers, but yeah, they were so selfish that they took what was left of their life from the rest of the world and from the gods, I would imagine. So it would make sense that their punishment is only to serve other spirits until whenever. I just, I found the term limits being so specific, very interesting. I was like, why? What makes it that? It, well, they don't ever explain it, really. No, it's they don't. The it's just in the book. Which I have to say has been like a hard nerd fantasy for me my whole life. I, I'm I'm RTFM to the core, and I've really been like, I wonder what's in that manual. Gosh, I would love to read it. Me too. I, I think to I lo- die to see it. You know, I eventually I'll get to that. Probably, I definitely don't want to stick around for that long. So, have you heard of a little thing called the Sefer Yetzera? Let me tell you what. There's this tree. And it's made of Sephiroth. And really, if you get into it, sometimes it reads a little like stereo instructions. See, my brain's just like Sephiroth? What? Yeah. Like the blah blah blah. You know. <laughs> Check that. I, I did like that the, the script gave us like a smidge more of the actual uh, handbook, though. I was like, yeah, like one more page. I also love that when Barbara found it at the beginning, she's like, look at this. And Adam like misreads it. But then she's like, look at the publisher. And I'm like, yeah, lady, checking the publisher. Look at you. Nice. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then later at the end of the movie, they've clearly expanded into the, you know, including the living in their handbook. 
they've got that like little pamphlet going on for like the living and the recently deceased, but it's still the handbook for the recently deceased press. Well, so for the whole movie being about how to control others and for the whole movie also being about the connections that people have, the responsibilities that people have to each other and civilization as a whole, and that even the dead have to abide by rules and regulations of society. What do we eventually learn is the thing that helps like the thing that actually works because the Dietzes have all the money in the world, but they also bring all the problems. So we also see that, you know, Barbara and Adam, they don't have a lot of money, but they pretty much have their own heaven. Right. So. Uh, and in the script, when they first die, Barbara explicitly thinks it is heaven. She's like, I never thought heaven would actually be getting to stay here forever, which is all I ever wanted. And then it progresses into these other people moving in. She's like, I was wrong. This is clearly hell. I hate this. And she'd rather die. She wants to kill herself again. Well, and then I think in the in the script, at least, it's very explicit, like the what they learn and the solution is the responsibility to each other, the coming together. They all have to come together at the end to perform the exorcism ritual on Beetlejuice. And if they aren't all participating, then it wouldn't have worked. But also the fact that if it weren't for Beetlejuice, they wouldn't have anything to unify over in the end. Yeah, absolutely. He's a perfect trickster character, for sure. He really is. I found it interesting. They they refer to him. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think they refer to him as the magician a lot in the script, like in the tarot card sense, I felt. Well, Jin start out not as powerful as they become. And part of their journey mm-hmm. as beings is to learn how to control the natural realm to con- and to control the elements and even to possess animals. That's one of their primary abilities is possession. He does possess a squirrel. He can make things appear. He has to get a lot of power first before he can do that from other people. Biblically speaking, there's a big problem when the fallen beings decide to make love to the human women, right? It's when they Mm -hmm. take wives for themselves, which is what Beetlejuice wants to do. In the the movie, yeah, he explicitly is like, I can do this thing or I can get married. That's also the solution to my problems. I I definitely, yeah, I got that Satan fallen angel feel because at one point after they've been considering it and they go to see Juno on the way back, Barbara's like, I don't want to get rid of that little girl, even if we have to keep her family. And Adam's like, well, we already have to do this now. And she's like, can't we rebel or something? And it just really smacked of fallen angels. Yeah. Barbara's like, I really just want to be with Lydia. It's almost like she chooses like who her daughter's going to be. And it's like Lydia chooses who her parents are going to be rather than being bound to them arbitrarily by their circumstance or by karma. It's something that they choose based on love. And so Adam and Barbara sort of become like Lydia's parents in a way. Well, that's what she wanted anyway. It's really what she needed. She certainly didn't same, have parents the before. They wanted a child and they got each other in the end. Even though it's beyond the, you know, veil, they still share that bond, which I thought was really cool. Maybe it was kind of a judgment and they were found deserving kind of thing. Be careful what you wish for. But yeah, in the in the script, it's much more explicit than like them taking over the parental role specifically for the Kathy child. It's also interesting to note that the archetypal parents of humanity are supposed to be what Adam and Eve, but instead it's Barbara. And so A and B is like an ancient name for both the heart, Ob the heart soul and has an association with God or father God. Also, Adam is the first human and then Barbara, like Barbaros, which is the the void feminine principle, like the matriarch 
Oh, the Barbello. Yeah. So you uh, have Barbello and Adam. Yeah. I thought that was kind of neat. And, and the Adam has, has this garden with the fruit. And then Beetlejuice is represented as a snake in the original story, which makes a lot of sense. Oh, because in the script, there's a big orchard that they have. Mm. Yes. And the Dietzes chop it, chop it down to have a party for their friends. With shellfish. <laughs> so their house is like heaven. It's a giant garden that Adam tends to. So it's basically the Garden of Eden. And then when they die, they realize they're trapped there with these like these awful people that are desecrating the garden and they can't do anything. So they ask the snake for help. Well, we know that the we know that uh, all the problems come in Gnosticism when Sophia emanates without her pair, and she accidentally creates Ialdabao, the serpent, the one who's a liar and a murderer from the beginning, which matches Beetlejuice's description quite well. Oh yeah, and it's funny because originally there's only the pears are the only thing that are ripened in the orchard, and then the Maitlands die, and the next person in the orchard is the little girl Kathy, and by then the apples are ready and she gives mm-hmm. one of those to the deer so at both points one of the piece of fruit is given to the deer but they're the different ones yeah the harry belafonte song that i wanted to bring up earlier is the line where he says like we put man and woman together to figure out which one is smarter mm-hmm. and the movie sort of plays with this idea that Barbara is probably the stronger or the mightier of the two she bops the snake on the nose and then even later in the film she seems to be able to shape shift better and turn into like that creepy ghoul and then turn back again where Adam is just like, man, I can't fix my nose. She she is definitely portrayed as the more intelligent part of the couple. But I, I think Adam's balance of like, he's got some more practical ideas going on in there. And like, she's emotionally kind of her from. Yeah, it, I think he helps her from becoming too superior. He's her guardian in a way, like, a, like almost like a a dog or something. Like I think they balance each other pretty well. Oh yeah. Whereas in the Deesis relationship, you see Delia is the leader. And she even well, takes she, her, she, her friend she, more seriously than her own husband. She's the leader by by fear though and violence. She she's not like inspiring a following. She's like threatening him into submitting. Yeah, and the father is like emanating this like in this uh this uh masculinity that's like insecure. Like he's not, he doesn't really believe in himself and you can tell in his demeanor. He's like a cowardly person. Even in the script, he like locks himself in his room to write all the time and then just sits and gets drunk when shit's going down. And not even privately, just out in front of the whole party. Right. Like, no, give no fucks. I like that it talked about how many word processors he had in, in the script. <laughs> like it was really into that. <laughs> it was like, there's more than one. I didn't know if that was like an early 90s, late 80s joke or something where perhaps Charles Dietz didn't quite understand that he was the one that needed to do the writing of the words and that maybe he was ordering a machine that would write books for him. No, it's just that you could only save like a little bit on a hard drive at a time. So a lot of writers would have different computers to write different novels on. It made sense to me. Yeah, yeah. He was very clearly like working on a novel on each one and then he had like two or three printers going and even a fax machine going yeah Yeah. i think it also was there to underscore the like look how much money they are like look how many books i could write at one time because he even bragged like when they first moved there, like well i'm not gonna write just six books this year i'm gonna write at least 10 or 12 you know like he was like he's a fucking he's a um uh a Pulp Fiction writer. So imagine yeah. the quality on that. He's just pumping it out. Yeah, it was in no way implied that they were going to be good books. 
just the, he's a money just, grab. He puts it out. And then Lydia's mom is his agent, which I'm like. Yeah, and that's why they left the city, apparently. That's well, why Delia wanted to leave the city. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to be around the ex. Which we know because later they have a fight just standing in the middle of a crowd shouting at each other. <laughs> I just like that it describes the people standing around them as just like getting the popcorn and being like, this is great. I love it. Literally like drinking wine and eating the hors d'oeuvres and just like standing around smiling and watching them. Yeah, pretty much everyone is horrible people in that. I love that it. whole group. Some of the insults were pretty great. Uh, I know you had a few favorites. I've, man. I just at one really- During that I think it's during that fight between the two moms, uh, Delia says, eat my shorts to Evelyn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like legit full anger, eat my shorts. And I'm oh like, God, whoa, lady, person. calm it down. <laughs> I would totally eat Delia's shorts. Gross. Yeah, I'm with Mari Icky. And if you'd like to hear more about the icky, icky things that we talk about on The Whole Rabbit, go to www.patreon.com slash The Whole Rabbit, where you can sign up for just $5 a month to get all the extended episodes, and I'll send you bonus stickers, and you can join our Discord where we talk about weird, strange things from the show, and sometimes even play video games together and pull each other's tarot cards. So yeah! Check it out if you're interested. And if you're not, then you can just go eat carrots and shoot lasers.